0: Hey guys, Jack here. Welcome back to the Just Hands podcast. Uh, we have a really great interview today with Tommy Angelo talking about his new book, Waiting for Straiters. It's going to be just me talking strategy today. Uh, I'm going to dig into the mailbox and talk about a really fun hand from Biloxi, uh, the Beau Ravage, a, a casino I really like, mostly because all the games are uncapped, which I think is pretty cool. Apologies again for the delay in coming out with this week's episode. We're going to try and get back on schedule. I have a bunch of recordings scheduled for later this week, so hopefully we should be back on a weekly basis uh, from this point on. But we are doing our best thinking about you guys. So thank you all for listening. And yeah, let's get into the hand. So yeah, this comes from the Beau uh, It's a 1-2 game, but it is uncapped. Our hero writes, There are four players that enter the pot. Middle position one uh, seems to be a very competent player. Uh We all started at the same time, and I've been at the table for about two hours or so. That's not a lot of time, but I've seen this player only show down strong value hands. There was a time I got to a pot with this player and my two-pair bet, the turn, and he folded queens. So this player seems very strong to me. Uh, definitely not the player I want to play a lot of pots with. Yeah, I think that this player is demonstrating a strategy that works well in these types of games with a lot of loose passive play, playing a strong range, value betting a lot, not bluff catching too much. So... While I agree that this isn't going to be most likely your biggest target at the table, I would still be looking for ways to beat this guy, because I don't think that necessarily anything in the description makes me think he's an extremely strong player, just that he's playing a good counter-strategy in a loose-passive environment. Um, Hijack is a young kid wearing earphones, but sitting to my right, uh, he's on an office phone, uh, whether it's texting or calling someone or random YouTube videos. He has a loose-passive feel to his play, but it's a newer guy and I haven't seen too much from here is in the cutoff, I like to play very aggressively, especially on this table where everyone loves to limp, besides the middle position one player. Finally, the button is an older gentleman, I would guess late 50s. He has very flashy jewelry and a leather jacket, bring a very nice Rolex watch, and he's extremely talkative. He's uh, a very loose, aggressive player that loves to use his stack to bluff. I have already called him down in a few pots because of those bluffy tendencies and have made decent money off him. Strangely though, he does not fold the river to aggression if the hand gets that far down. Okay, that's a very good read. So stacks are, and this is a deep game. Middle position one is 650. The hijack has 150. Cut off hero has 425, and the button has them all covered with 2.5k. Um, this is one two. All right, so middle position one, the tough player opens to 12, folds, and I guess that's a pretty standard opening size at this table. Folds to the hijack, who calls the 12. And hero calls the twelve with king ten offsuit in the cutoff. So I think already you're (laughs) this doesn't necessarily line up with your read of middle position one. If you feel like this is a very good player and you don't want to be playing pots with him, then I think calling with king ten offsuit, which is a pretty marginal hand to begin with, in a cutoff, you know, not a bad seat at the table, but you know, you don't know you're gonna have position. Uh we have a very loose player on the button. I think just calling with this hand is probably a mistake. I think folding is fine. I think three betting is also reasonable, but I think folding is probably best given that middle position one is pretty tight. We decide to call King of Hearts, Ten of Spades, and the button does come along. That's another reason to consider just folding or three betting is the fact that the button's going to come along so often. So here it goes on. Normally on the button, I would three bet knowing that I'm in position and Villain Two would call, and I'm pretty confident in outplaying him post flop. Here, however, I would know, I know he would call which might get villain 1 to put in a 4-bet that I would have to fold to. So I thought I would simply call with the odds I know I would be getting when villain 2 calls. I think villain 2 is the the button. Let me see if I can find out for sure. Basically, I think the mistake here is that we feel like our odds are better to call, knowing that the button is going to come along a lot. The thing is, the button calling in position with a hand that has equity isn't good for us obviously if that player is so bad that they're gonna you know put in a ton of money in all the worst ways post flop then sure it can be good and um, we wouldn't want to squeeze that player out but I think for the most part thinking that an imposition player calling gives us better odds and therefore makes our call better is a little bit flawed thinking because it's not like this player just has nothing and they're in position which is a really big advantage in this game uh, so yeah again I would fold I think three bed is fine I think call is Not your best option, but it's okay. Flop comes 10 of clubs, 8 of spades, deuce of clubs. So we have top pair, good kicker, no clubs. It checks to hero. So villain one checks, hijack checks. Hero decides to bet $15. And so we have about 50 in the pot right now. So yeah, I think this is just uh, not big enough of a sizing. It's not so much that I'm certain you have the best hand. I think this is, you know, based on the board texture, our best chance to get value And we have an interest in getting protection from hands like, you know, ace queen that might not fold to 15. But yeah, I think, I think you fairly likely have the best hand. You want to choose a sizing that works well with your entire range. And I think most other bets, like if you had a club draw or a straight draw or a hand stronger than King 10, I think you'd want to bet larger. And so I wouldn't split your betting range into two sizings here. I think just going with something like 40 uh, with everything makes sense. And Villain 2 calls the 15 and Villain 1 raises the $30. The hijack folds. And so we're faced with the decision of, you know, whether to call the 15 or do something else. I would honestly consider raising here. I think it's pretty likely that you have the best hand. Villain 1 raising is a little suspect. You know, he, he could have a big hand, but I think that you've demonstrated a lot of weakness. Betting $15, Villain 2 doesn't look particularly strong, just overcalling on a very dry, heavy board. And why would Villain 1 choose to raise the $30? I don't know. It doesn't make sense really with anything to me. But I feel that there's a good chance you have the best hand. And I would consider putting in a raise. Of course, folding is out of the question. But yeah, I think that you avoid this sort of tricky spot if you bet larger. And then when you face a raise, you know that your opponent is in a more polarizing situation. You know, if that did occur, I think that you'd have a pretty good candidate to call, unblocking all the draws. But yeah, I would. I think the main takeaway on this street is to bet larger. So villain one raised to thirty dollars. We decide to call. Hero writes. So I decided to take a stab with my top pair when check to, mainly because I know villain two is always continuing with his second pair in flush draws. However, with villain one raising, I'm pretty sure I'm beat. I mean, they, he almost never raises with air. And I do not want to fold, but I'm positive the villain one will call. And with the raise only 2x, I'm getting such great odds to continue and reevaluate on the turn. Yeah, I'm not sure that you're always beat. Um, I'm also getting a little bit confused about who's who, but that's okay. Yeah, I think I've said what I want to say on this street. I definitely wouldn't fold getting this price, even as you suspect that you're often beat. I don't have the same intuition, but we'll, we'll take it as such. Okay. The turn is the King of Clubs. So interesting card, we have two pair, but the front door flush draw, or maybe the only flush draw comes in. Um, the board is the Ten of Clubs, Eight of Spades, Two of Clubs, King of Clubs, and we have King Ten. Villain 1 checks, Hero checks, and I think that that is a good check. Villain 2 bets $75, Villain 1 calls, and Hero calls. Okay, so this is an interesting spot. So villain two, to reiterate, is our older, rich gentleman on the button who likes to bluff. So I think you're right not to fold here. And yeah, I think there's a lot of hands that the button could have. You know, he could be bluffing with a straight draw. He could be turning a hand like a pair with a club draw to bluff. He could just have a 10, an eight, and be decided to just bet. I think that given our opponent's tendencies, it's We just don't have a reason to suspect that we should fold. I think when villain one check calls here, it makes it fairly likely that he has a hand like one strong one pair, something like aces that check raise the flop, maybe something like ace 10 with the ace of clubs, something like that. It's possible that he has a set, but we, I think you rate to have the best hand at some frequency here. We have a good price and you have... One would think that you probably have four outs to improve to a nut at hand. I like the call here, and I think if you're facing a big bet from either player on the river, probably find the fold, but I I think right now it's too early. So the river card is the Ten of Diamonds, which is really pretty. Villain 1 checks, hero checks, villain 2 shoves, villain 2 has us both covered, villain 1 calls, and hero calls. And yeah, I think this is a very clear call. Villain 2 could have a flush and be taking this line. Villain 2 could also have the same hand as you. Villain 2 could have... You could have a number of worse hands. You could have slow played a set or two pair and have a worse full house. We're obviously just at the top of our range. We can never fold. Well played on the turn and the river, in my opinion. So Hero writes, Obviously I hit my magic card. When Villain 1 checked me, I officially put him on some kind of 10 hand maybe ace-10, ace-king, or even pocket-8s, which is why I checked the turn. And yeah, I think that's a good read. I would include hands like maybe even queens or aces or jacks, and I don't think those would necessarily fold the turn if he has the same read on the button that you do. And given that he's a stronger player at the table, he probably does have a similar read. Because he checked the turn and I have a king in my hand, it's unlikely that he has pocket kings. With that being said, I decided to check as well, because I know that Villain 2 is always betting his flush here. I forgot to read Hero's comments on the turn. Hero is almost certain that Button has a flush, and I think that your certainty is a little bit results-oriented and just isn't true. I I think you might be ignoring the read that you gave to Button preflop. You know, he calls with everything. He bluffs like crazy. And so to think that he just always has a flush here, it seems very inconsistent with your previous read. So if you thought that he always had a flush, then... You know, we could probably fold the turn, even though we're still getting a really good price with four relatively clean outs. You know, I really like the turn call, but part of the reason I like the turn call is because I disagree with your turn and now River Reed that he always has the flush. And I think if if you think he always has the flush, then I would consider just uh shoving here yourself, since I don't I don't think it's a certainty that he's going to go ahead and bet it for you. In fact that's I think that was a mistake on my part to suggest that you just call or sorry, that you just check to the button. Um I think when the the 10 pairs, it makes him bluffing a lot less likely. And so I think that you can get the max against the flush. Like you you already said, he's not going to fold a flush or that he doesn't like to fold reverse. Um, and I think that you ensure that you get paid by worse boats. Like if it checks through and villain one had pocket eights, that's kind of a disaster. So yeah, I think just lead jamming is the move here. So Hero writes, I knew a villain two bets the river and villain one had the eights, he was shoving, and I'd be able to get my stack in with a better my better full. And yeah that's true, but I think that, you know, for the reasoning I just mentioned, you'd be better off just shoving yourself. Last thing Hero writes is the only spot that I feel like I could really have gotten away from this hand is preflop. And I I agree. He writes, had I three bet instead of calling, which is something that I debated on, there's no doubt in my mind villain one would have four bet, then I could have comfortably folded and would have never been in this position. Sure, you know, I think that's true, and I think that is, even though it's very results-oriented evidence, it is some evidence for deciding to 3-bet or call um, in this spot. Or sorry, 3-bet or fold rather than call. So, as you guys who are listening to this may have suspected, <laughs> this uh, we, we didn't end up winning the pot. Villain 1 had pocket kings, and Villain 2 had ace of clubs, five of clubs. So we ended up. I think if no, yeah, okay. So yeah, we uh we lost, which is a bummer. But oh well. I don't think there was any reason to suspect that you had the the worst hand here. And even if you acknowledge that villain one can have kings this um and play it this way, I do think it's kind of surprising that villain one didn't just shove himself. But even if we acknowledge that he could have kings, we still can just never get away. Um so. Well played post flop. I think I think just bet larger on the on the flop. I think uh, three better fold probably just fold pre flop. Other than that, well played. Um, and thank you for writing into the podcast. And now enjoy a interview with the great Tommy Angelo. Hello and welcome to the I think the first interview only segment of the Just Hands podcast. And I would have none other than the great Tommy Angelo to. Bring in the inaugural interview slot,
1: Tommy. How you doing, Jack? Good. I'm I'm honored to be part of this <laughs> new wave. Yeah, it's the it's a new day. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: the, the great historians will mark this moment. Right, <laughs> I'm sure they will. <laughs> so many people know that you are an author in addition to being a poker player, and they may suspect that part of the reason that you're coming on the show is because you have crafted another great work you're looking to share with people. Would they be correct
1: in this assumption? They would be most correct in that assumption. I wouldn't call it great myself, but it is another work that I'm really happy about and happy to be talking about with you.
0: I've read it, and I'm going to label it as great. Especially, it's great both in the sense that it's extremely enjoyable to read and totally unique. Would you mind... Sort of totally
1: totally
0: what? unique. Oh, thank you.
1: Would you mind giving us a window into sure. what it is and how it came to be? Okay. Uh, the name of the book is Waiting for Straighters. And the word straighter is a word I cooked up while I was writing the book. It's a, and we'll just start there because it's pretty important to understand what a straighter is. Uh, at Hold'em, a straighter is a hand that can flop a straight. So Ace-10 is a straighter. Ace-9 is not a straighter. Seven-deuce is not a straighter. Six-deuce is a straighter. And we'll get, you know, more into the depth of all that as we go. Uh, The article is half about no-limit hold'em and half about PLO. The definition of a straighter in PLO is a whole different animal, and it has different uses than in hold'em. The definition of a straighter at PLO is... Well, first, we've got to break all the hands into three categories. Hands with a pair, hands with an ace, and then other. Okay. For the, in the context of a straighter at PLO, we're talking only about other. We're talking about aceless, pairless hands. And among the aceless, pairless hands, if you have a hand that only has two gaps in it, for example, jack 10, 8, 6 has a gap between the 10 and the 8 and a gap between the 8 and the 6, that's a straighter. If your hand has three or more gaps in it, it's not. So the hand, say, Jack 9, 7, 5, I just skipped every card, would not be a straighter. There's three gaps in there. Jack 10, 9, 8 would be a straighter. Jack 10, 9, 7 is a straighter. Jack 10, 9, 6 is a straighter, because there's still just two gaps, 9, 8, 7, and then Jack 10, 9, 5 would not be. Another way to look at a straighter in PLO is the span. If the total span of cards is six cards, that's a straighter. If it's seven or more, it's not. So that gets us at least to the definition of a of a straighter. The main point to emphasize about the article and like what it's about, and in fact I'm just going to read a paragraph from the introduction. It says waiting for straighters does not mean wait until you get a straighter and then play it. It means wait for a straighter at least and then maybe play it. In other words, fold the non straights That's the gist of this article. End quote. Back to you.
0: Right. And just in case there's any sort of super detailed nuts in the audience, I don't think time is suggesting that you fold your pocket pairs
1: in Hold'em. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah absolutely. So the, I, I'm glad you clarified that. At Hold'em, <laughs> again, a straighter refers to Non-paired hands, basically. Any non-paired hand, yeah, for sure. Does not right. mean to hold the, straight, the pairs, yeah.
0: What I really liked about the book is that it's... So a lot of poker books, especially strategy books, they they're not necessarily giving... They're not presenting strategy in a way that's practical. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that strategy becomes more and more useful as it's easier to implement. And part of what makes a strategy easy to implement, and I think that you are the author who has done the most work on this front, is if a strategy doesn't stress you out. Yeah. You know, if if you have two strategies and they both make the same amount of money, you know, hypothetically, and one stresses you out endlessly and the other doesn't, yeah. Well then, the optimal strategy is the one that doesn't stress you out. And since the actual win rate of any sort of strategy is really fairly mysterious, it's not something that you can know. Right. You're much more able to access like the feelings you might have employing that strategy. And given the nature of poker, you know, being such that you don't really know what will work best and you do know what makes you feel terrible? Mm -hmm. Maybe if you can find a strategy that works both on, you know, a tilt-free level and has strategic merit, that's kind of the sweet spot.
1: Yeah. It's super huge. And it's, it's like, I got back into coaching a lot about a year ago and I've been going over this stuff with clients and I get so excited when I'm talking to a client who has what I consider to be the biggest leak in poker, which is playing the blinds too often. And when when I watch the the ideas gel in their mind and they see the the beauty that it's like a win-win-win, because when you fold a a marginal situation from the blinds, you're not only probably making the correct play, okay? Like you said, you can't know for sure. But even if it's close, if it's a borderline case, what you're doing is you're lowering your VPIP in general like round after round, which gives you more fold equity. But to the tilt issue is where it's really, really huge because the hands that, that give us the most consternation are the hands we're out of position. And, and so if you play one or two hands out of position with marginal hands from the blinds and you're a little rattled from that, like win or lose, you know, you went through some stressful streets and now all of a sudden you're on the button and cutoff, which are the, the hands. And so what, I, what I've been doing for years when I teach guys is basically just fold the blinds and watch those hands and get ready for your button and cutoff. And waiting for straighters gives a really clear line for people to experiment with. You know, the, the subtitle of the article it's called Waiting for Straighters. And the subtitle is a pre-flop experiment for No Limit, Holdem in and Pot Limit Omaha. It's an experiment. What I suggest is that anybody who is struggling with really any aspect of playing too loose or tilting too much or they think they leak too much. That that if they just were to lock onto this concept for like five or ten sessions and give it a shot, and they will be playing a lower VPIP than they ever imagined. But just do it for like 10 or 20 sessions and just feel the power that builds from playing about one you know, way, way fewer out of position pots with marginal hands. That's what happens if you do the follow the guidelines of the article, and then you end up exhibiting this great discipline because you're folding the small blind for one chip i mean that's like the greatest play you can make to establish power over the table and say to them i am an immovable force is when five people limp at two five hold them and it costs you three chips and you don't put it in like ever you know unless you've got a real hand and these are the types of things that are just like mind-boggling to people who have never thought about it before. And then when they go out and they start doing it, and they're like, wow, I really can be a tight player. I have a guideline that I can follow now.
0: Yeah, and I, I think this, this type of strategy is both sound from a mental game standpoint, but also I think people underestimate just like that it's – they underestimate the degree to which it's a sound play mathematically you know, when you're, you're talking about completing the small blind when there are several limps in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a spot where people misconstrue pot odds to their great detriment. I strongly agree. And they say, look, I'm, you know, getting six to one. Right. And even though I have a terrible hand and I'm, you know, first to act out of five, like how can I say no to that? Right. And, you know, what they're not realizing is that They're thinking about, you know, a hand like, you know, let's say, 8-3 suited. Mm -hmm. They're thinking about that in a heads-up context, where even a hand as bad as 8-3 suited is going to have, you know, at least like 30% equity against a reasonable opening range. Now, when there are four players other than you in the pot, your equity tanks. It's much more likely to be in the 10-15% to range. And beyond that, you're in the absolute worst seat at the table to realize that equity. That's and, the key, right? Yeah, I mean, both, you have to think both in terms of equity and expected value and right. understand not only is your equity worse than you think, but your expected value is much worse than you think. Because, well, I think you illustrate really nicely in the book like some of the sort of duh things about playing a position that are under, underappreciated. Like one thing that, so I read this book like right before a session. And when you mentioned how, when you're out of position, no one can bet into you when you have like a monster. Mm -hmm. And people don't, I don't think people think about that enough. I mean, they they should think about it because it's such a fun thing to think about.
1: Let me read a paragraph, the the paragraph you're referencing. Okay. Sure. Yeah, please do. so there's one. There's a one-page essay in here about last to act, and I've written a lot about it over the years, and I feel like I've really captured a couple key things here. Okay, so I'm just going to read one paragraph. Being last to act is about losing the least when you're beat and winning the most when you're not. Only as last to act can you check behind. Only as last to act can you bet when checked to. Only as last to act can you be bet into when you have a monster. Only as last to act can you plan the hand as last to act. This is why money flows to the left. End quote. So to me, and there's another place where I say that, you know, I, and this, and I have collected the data on this. I act last on 80% of the streets I play, which is just a crazy high number. But that's my number, and it really feels unfair. That's what, it's almost like I'm cheating. It's like I, it's impossible to lose. And all I do to achieve this, and this is the whole reciprocality concept, I don't get to be last to act by just playing my button more often. I get to be last to act way, way, way more than my opponents by folding the blinds and folding all the, un, you know, the first three or four under-the-gun seats in a full game. I basically don't play those seats ever unless I have ace, king, or a pocket pair, period. And that is why I am never in a big pot without some kind of showdown hand out of position. And I'm last to act on any time I have a drawing hand, I'm last to act. That's basically what it comes down to.
0: Yeah. And I think we spend a lot of time, or at least I spend a lot of time thinking about how to play out of position better. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten to a point where even though I realize that playing out of position is undesirable, and I look for opportunities, or I try and play in position and understand in my decision making the disadvantages of playing out of position. I've grown to be very comfortable playing the out of position part and mm-hmm. understanding what are the spots where I can insert myself in win pots, and what are the spots where I just need to bow out. Mm-hmm. But I think because we spend so much time, you know, especially when you're playing in games or you're playing a style where it forces you to be out of position more often than 20% of the time. And I think there's a lot of very legitimate styles that that's the occurrence. It can lead you down a path where you're signing up for this not very profitable and potentially stressful circumstance more often than you should. So I would basically my advice is even though we spend a lot of time figuring out how to play out of position better, it doesn't mean that now we want to be playing out of position all the time.
1: Great point. Just because yeah. Yeah, you want to play out of position really, really well when the when the situation forces you to. But just because you can play out of position well doesn't mean you should invite the situation, right? Is that kind of what you're saying?
0: Yeah, it's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, it's uh-huh. part of the reason that I use a large opening size. It's because when I open large, I think the players who make the least amount of adjustments to that size are limpers in the players in the blinds. Uh, the players left to act, I think, tend to overcall a lot more for, let's say, 30 in a 510 versus 50. And so I'm definitely, when I'm entering pots, you know, from the middle of the table, I'm conscious about the fact that I really prefer to isolate the blinds. Yeah. And that's right. and limpers. And that's sort of the, the whole point of the game, essentially. Right. When you're in later position... It's worth coaxing the blinds into the pot more often through smaller sizings uh, because your risk of being overcalled and having to play out a position is smaller
1: I would agree with that yeah i just one more little thing about a uh, position one of the things that just kind of uh, alerted me to this was back when I was doing a ton of coaching in oh seven oh eight oh nine i clients would send me hands I would have them send me hands five and ten at a time and we we'd talk about them and i and I noticed that of after a while I noticed a pattern when people were sending me hands that it seemed like the hands that they were having trouble with were out of position hands. And so I started keeping track and over like the next 200 hands clients sent me four out of five of them that were out of position. That were problem hands. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I almost never got a hand from somebody that said I had ten nine on the button. It was always, I had ten nine in the small blind. Those were the problem hands. Right.
0: I think, and we've talked a lot about waiting or Avoiding out of position play, but I think also waiting for straighters. Another thing to consider yeah. is I think that people, I think the hands people feel most or they have the worst emotional responses to you know what's transpired in the hand uh-huh. are fall into two categories. The first category is hands that are very strong that lose, hands like Ace King or Jacks plus, let's say, that don't win the pot. These tend to trigger really negative emotional responses when things don't go well, because mm-hmm. people have sort of already scooped the pot in their mind by the time they got to the flop. Right. And then the other category are hands where people regret, not just pre-flop. Right. And they understand that the situation that they got themselves into was very <laughs> avoiding. It would have been a highly justifiable decision. Mm-hmm. And I think it's harder to eliminate losing with aces from your game it's much easier to eliminate calling with hands that you're going to regret from your yeah. game
1: yeah so let's let's talk about the straighters themselves and i'm just i'm actually kind of curious as how even before you read the article if like you know a big part of the article at the beginning is like the discovery of how i found this as so not not founded but the What we're talking about now is the difference between three gappers and four gappers, like the difference between Mm -hmm. Jack Seven and Jack Six, and that 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 was part of my consciousness early on, way back, even before people were playing no limit. Back when it was limit hold'em, and then you know I told the story in the article about these various discoveries I made, and everything kept pointing to this line being like really, really a critical line. And then I started working into my game naturally, and, and like an example might be, let's say a few people limp and you know, stacks are deep, bad players, and you've got, I've got queen eight suited in the big blind, let's say, okay. There was a period in my game where I would play that hand and feel really, really good about it. And I would fold queen seven suited. And I didn't quite even, this is a long time ago, I didn't fully understand why. I just knew that that was like a really important line. And then as is in the book, you know, when you have a hand like queen eight, Let's say offsuit. For right now, the suitedness doesn't really matter. On the button. You know, one of the points I make is that, or or it doesn't matter what position, when you flop one pair with with queen seven, you've got five outs to improve. And that's it. And you've got to play the whole hand, whether you're in position or out of position, thinking, okay, am I going to take this one pair to the river against this guy? Or do I need to improve or whatever? And all you need to have is queen eight. And then suddenly, if the board is, you know, whatever, eight, nine, deuce. Now you can pick up cards on the turn that give you a backdoor and all this stuff. And these things really matter when you're last to act because you might be the aggressor on the button with say queen eight and you get one caller and then you flop a pair and you see bet and you get a feeling this guy's got a big hand and he calls and now you pick up your backdoor gut shot straight and he checks and you have the option to check behind here and snag a card that's going to bust a guy who flopped a set or whatever. Right. So when it comes to busting sets, cracking sets and two pair, which is where you really make money, you know, hitting your straights, it's like having that straight potential, not just some of the time. This is the key thing, but every time. That's the difference when you're waiting for straighters, is you're never in there with queens six. So you're never in there with the five outer. You always have that backup equity and the backup everything. So you're in position with the potential straight draws all the time. And so whenever these free roll, and this is huge at PLO, you know, where you got the big free rolls and all this stuff. And if, if you're the guy that always has the straight potential and you're against a whole player pool of millions of people who oftentimes don't, that that advantage over the years, that's a big part of the theme of my teaching is like everybody isn't trying to be a, a grinder, but if they were, what would they do? And this is what I think they would should do, which is play really, really consistently, conservatively before the flop, Forever,
0: mm-hmm. I think another aspect of straighters, So a lot of players listening to this show are likely accustomed to being or having initiative on the flop. Mm-hmm. You know, at a really high frequency, and this is because most of you, I would guess, are playing in games where you're raising more than the field is raising, and you're three betting more than the field is three betting. Which means that there's a lot of pots where People limped and you raised or people raised and you three bet. Right. And so most of the flops that you're getting to, you have initiative. And the reason straighters are so important in this setting is that bluffing with equity, especially not equity, is so much more profitable than bluffing without it. It's I think it's underappreciated how much of the value of semi-bluffing comes from hitting your hand and getting paid. hmm the threshold of folds you need to get when semi-bluffing is much, much lower as your equity improves. And when you have a straighter and can flop open-ended or even just a gut shot,
1: uh-huh.
0: it makes a really big difference. There's a reason why at least some people used to consider Jack 10 suited the most powerful hand. Mm-hmm. I think you know that's a hand that... I always say that that hand is very served by having initiative. You know, when, when Jack-10 flops a Jack or a 10, it's nice. But when you're getting bet into, and that's the case, you know, life's fine, but it's not great. You know, dominating pairs are very present. But when we open, you know, Jack-10, get called by the blinds, and the flop is, you know, 9-7-X, we're in a commanding position. Yep. Our Our opponent without having really a monster is just not gonna be able to compete for this pot against that hand.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's like that's what the it's almost like the hand is won at that point, just by maneuvering into that situation.
0: Yeah. There are some times where I advocate playing non-straters, but the the ability to make a straight, and this is something you mentioned in the book, is more value more valuable than the ability to one make a flush and mm-hmm. to dominate top pair with two pair. And so, playing a hand like queen seven suited from you know, opening from the button, I think this is a good play. Mm-hmm. But when you're called, it's difficult. There's a lot of value in flopping two pair when your opponent flops top pair, but that's a situation that actually comes up very, very infrequently. You're much more likely. It
1: can go just the other way around just as often. You're going to flop the queen and they flop the bottom two pairs. So, you know, that's kind of a wash, right? It's kind of a wash, although we're in position. Well, yeah, yeah. But that value is is always there. But I Okay. I hear what you're saying.
0: Yeah, I think defending the big blind with queen seven suited, that is a line that takes a lot of maturity and precision. And it's not that maturity and precision doesn't get you a ton of money. <laughs> so you you have to enjoy it.
1: <laughs> so, but let me ask you something. So this is one of the, one of the things in the book. It's like, let's say you've got a, you know, experienced player like yourself, that's done the work and you, you really good and so, comfortable with your ranges and all that. Somewhere along the line, you're going to dip into a part of your range your pre-flop range, given the situation that is near break even, let's say. Mm-hmm. You know, so, in other words, somewhere you're going to have a queen seven, queen six, queen five. Somewhere in there, you're going to have a hand that, that you think you should fold all the time to a raise. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. So, so one of the things I suggest to people in the article is like, take wherever you think those lines are for every situation and just trim off the bottom one, two, three, four, five percent of hands that you know are the borderline hands. And this would be, you know, it's very unlikely to cost you any real money, but it's extremely likely to lower your fluctuation in a huge way, right? Because you might be adding a tiny bit of profit by playing the marginal ones, but you're also adding an inordinate amount of fluctuation to gain that small profit.
0: Yeah, I think a really good sort of personal metric to have in the back of your mind with that subset of your range Mm -hmm. is how you value experience versus volatility. If you're someone who enjoys the challenge and can take on the volatility, then I would lean you more towards playing or attempting to play some of those hands. I think yeah. cutting off so, anything that like you really feel is anything that you're you feel is probably a bad play or probably at best break even should be a fold. Mm-hmm. If you if you're thinking that something is probably a winning play, like let's say the Button opens to $15 in a 2-5 game, uh, we're $500 effective, and you're in the big line with Queen-6 suited. Mm-hmm. I would say that this is definitely a spot where you can make a plus EV call if you play well post flop. I'm very confident in that, assuming that, or really almost regardless of what the button strategy is. I mean, if you know that the button is only raising Jax plus, then okay, fold. But... And all I feel that the button is raising a range against which I think that we can defend profitably. Okay. Now, I still, that being said, think that if you aren't confident in how to navigate that situation, and you're the type of person who prefers lowering volatility rather than you know plunging yourself into unknown waters to try and figure out what to do,
1: mm-hmm. just fold. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. I like the phrase, wait for a better spot. I mean, that just, to me, just says it so well, so patiently.
0: Yeah, I think having worked with a lot of people who enjoy the challenge and don't get to play as much as they'd like, I think they worry about waiting for a better spot. But I would say, a better a better even if like you don't play it as much as you'd like, a better spot will certainly come very soon than defending Queen-6 suited in the big blind. And yeah, I think just being honest with yourself, uh, if you know you're going to be frustrated, if things don't work out in these situations and you're going to regret not folding, mm-hmm. you're just better off folding, almost certainly.
1: You know, another way I look at it is like, let's say you're the guy opening on the button with whatever, 50% range. Okay. And I look at it as like, if I know that the guy's got queen six suited in the, in the, in the big blind, do I want him to call or not? And my answer is I do. <laughs> you know, I, I want them calling with non straighter. You know, non-high card hands. I feel like I still have a big advantage on the button there, even if I have seven deuce offsuit. And so, if the guy, if the guy who's calling with the queen six in the blinds also thinks that he has an advantage, it's like, what gives there?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on the kind of price you're laying. You know, if it's a tournament and there's annies in the pot, and you're choosing a min raise.
1: Well, let, let's keep it in a full live cash game. You know. Just your basic deep stack two five game, the guy's opening for fifteen or twenty. Doesn't it just seem funny to you that both players can be so sure that they have the best of it going in? It is funny, and I think that I think it,
0: it's it's sort of rooted in the arrogance of poker
1: players. <laughs> oh, actually I put this in a in a saying. Seventy five percent of all poker players think they play better than the other seventy-five percent. Yeah. There you go. But, but this is different, though. Because Now, granted, we can account for the ego factor, but we're talking about among pure analysts here, right? I mean, you and your solve for why guys or whatever, you could put together a bunch of smart people, and, and they could all think, okay, it's correct for me to f- defend with the queen-six suited in this situation. And then they could also think with the 10-9 on the button that they actually want the guy to call. Yeah, I, I think I would be
0: fairly likely to fold a hand like queen-six suited to myself. <laughs> okay if i if i open the button and i'm in the big line <laughs> right especially if i make it 20 dollars, i'm 100 percent right. folding
1: oh so it's very much player dependent at that point you're you're it, it isn't pure gto right because you're saying i'll call if the guy's an idiot but i'll fold if he's a good player
0: when it's pure gto it's going to depend a lot on the odds you're being laid when it's player dependent odds still matter but the better information you have against your opponent Mm-hmm. The more hands you should be playing. And yeah, so if, he plays uh, good. Yes, that's actually that, okay. that statement. No, no, no. That statement needs more detail. <laughs> okay. Well, we don't the, have to go
1: there. Yeah. Well, the
0: more the more things you know, your opponent does wrong. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. Got gotcha. that, That's gotcha. Gotcha. the sort of information that's more useful. Obviously, okay. things that you know your opponent does right that the field doesn't do right is also useful to have, as long as your opponent's doing enough other things wrong. But yeah, if you if you know you're up against Matt Berkey in the button, probably just full. (laughs) Even if you have a good idea of how he plays.
1: Right. Because if you know how he plays, then you know that you're supposed to full. Right. And that's part of waiting for a better spot. It isn't just the cards. It's better. It's the players, right? Yeah. And I I
0: think it's an edge that it's not a very sexy edge to most, (laughs) but showing up with stronger hands when that patience isn't punished by the game format. Is that's, really important.
1: Oh, yeah. And that, that's another aspect of this whole thing. When I've talked to guys, they're like, well, if I played that tight, people would know what I have and I wouldn't get paid off and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you are so wrong. It, until you have actually done it for 20 sessions, you will never know. That's one of the ending things. It's like until you try this, you never know. But as one who has been playing basically the lowest VPIP I've ever seen in a poker room at both games for like eight years, I get paid off tons. And here's the beautiful part, right? I don't actually have to balance my range completely for my opponents to be putting me on a balanced range because I blast into Vegas. I play for two or three hour sessions. You know, people don't know me that long, right? And so let's say that that I open under the gun and it comes down to a hand and they're like, and the board's 987 or whatever. They don't know that I don't have jack, that I'm never, ever getting a lot open jack 10 suited as long as I live under the gun. But so so I don't actually have to balance my range for, for to continue to play as if I had a balanced range, which is just really awesome. And then the other thing is, this goes all the way back to Limit Hold'em study. Is like if you know a guy's got ace, king, aces, kings, queens, jacks, or tens or whatever, some number of pairs, then the chance – I think it's aces, queens, and jacks. The chances of him having a pair or not is 50-50, right? So if I open and a guy knows for sure I have ace, king, or a big pair, and, the board co- and he has pocket fives, and the board comes deuce, 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 he's on a pure guess, he's got my name – my range narrowed down to the finest range possible. And he still has no idea how to play the hand. So that's my whole spiel on how playing tight does not give the opponent some great, you know, read on you or make it any easier to play against you.
0: Yeah. I think it's very true that everyone gets paid more than they should. And this is part of why playing tight can work and often does work. Being in New York and being in home games, there can be a limit to how long playing a very tight strategy can work. Definitely much more so than in any casino environment I've ever seen. The home game environment is a little bit more ruthless towards people who just don't play any hands and never bluff. And I'm not saying that that is what you fall into. But with enough conditioning, people can stop paying off specific players who show extreme tendencies in this way. But in a casino environment and 100% playing against people who have never played against you before, mm. everyone gets paid when they yeah. have it. Yeah. So I really think that that's why playing a ton of hands is challenging is because you have to be very precise with your bluffing um, because right. it, it's so much easier to get paid you know, in a sense than it is to reliably get fulls. And so you have to be very crisp exactly. with the folds you get because you know that most of the field in
1: many situations will pay too much. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up bluffing, because to play the, the style I'm playing the you know, the bluffing is really huge part of the game. I mean if I did if I played this tight and didn't bluff, that would be no good. But the you know, one of the things that, that comes up in PLO too, it's like my buddy Alex calls it squeezer vid. You know, when you when you do play very mm-hmm especially if you look a little older like me people put you in a box and they don't they don't think you're gonna be bluffing much right and the bluffing situations that do come up you know i don't bluff that often but they're like they work like 90 percent of the time and one of the reasons they work this is one of those extra meta game things is that uh, i was just in vegas last week playing plo and this hand came up and i bet on the turn or whatever and you know i was representing high cards even though i had a medium straighter hand and so I was bluffing and after a couple checks and I could see the guy thinking and what he was thinking to himself was, I don't want to be the guy to pay off the guy that never bluffs. Nobody wants to be the chump who, you know, a guy sits there all night. He finally puts a big bet out there and you've got whatever and you call him and he turns over the nuts. And just the shame of that earns me extra squeezer, mm-hmm. enough, extra equi- full equity. I just wanted to throw that out there. It's one of these extra little bonuses that people don't think about until they're in the situation of playing really tight, that there's ex, you know, money just comes in in different ways.
0: I think these conversations can be a little cryptic to people who haven't put in a lot of volume because it sounds like we're saying, oh yeah, I always get paid and I always get folds. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> and obviously what's, what's left unsaid often in these conversations. And the reason it's left unsaid is because there's too much unconscious things happening. And also it's such a broad array of situations, but essentially the reason both these things can sort of be true is that there's just a level of awareness about, is this one of these spots that my bluff's always going to work? Is this one of these spots where I'm just getting paid for sure?
1: Right. At some point it just comes down to playing poker. Well, yeah, the more you play,
0: the more that these spots present themselves or that they just sort of become something that you see
1: not effortlessly,
0: but, but they become very apparent. And it can be hard to communicate that.
1: Yeah. And it does, it takes some time. It's like, anytime I see the flop, I got my bluffer ready to go no matter what. And, you know, that's just an attitude that's, and it might mean I don't pull the trigger for hours, but I'm, I'm ready. I'm looking, you know, I'm looking for the opportunity.
0: Yeah. I think this is also why if you are, less experienced playing the tighter preflop strategy. I think it's a much, it's just a much better way to learn. Um,
1: oh yeah. I agree with that for sure.
0: Yeah. I think it's easier. <laughs> it's a much cheaper lesson to learn like when you're going to get paid versus when you're not going to get paid mm-hmm. versus when you're going to get folds and when you're not going to get folds. As you play, as your style becomes different and your opponents perceive that difference, you know, there are, are micro adjustments the thing is a lot of it is independent of like how your style is perceived. A lot of it has more to do with just how your opponents feel about different situations and the sorts of intuitions you can have about how your opponent is going to respond, you know, regardless of what they think of you. And so if you learn those sorts of lessons by having it and you know noting whether you got paid or you didn't, versus not having it mm-hmm. and noting, you know, when your bluff got picked off and when it didn't. The former is a much more profitable way of going about learning, even though it's much, it is much—it is slower, I will say. Yeah, slower, but safer. It's not how I went about it, but that's because I, I went about this process playing you know, microstakes online as a teenager and playing against my friends for small amounts of money. And so it was just a more conducive environment to learning through the trial and error of bluffing relentlessly.
1: And I, I played poker for about uh, 10 or 12 years before I even knew you were allowed to fold before the flop. <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's kind of funny that I've gone from, you know, playing pretty much every hand to <laughs> pretty much no hands. Took 40 years, but here we are.
0: Well, I think that's sh- that just something kind of profound about how the game works. You didn't go from playing no hands to every hand over 40 years.
1: Right, it was gradual the whole way. Yeah. Right,
0: so Tommy, we are recording this during the Ohio State Michigan football game. <laughs> I know a little bit of what happened, but what I do, what I definitely know is that I think both of us are looking forward to watching the Buckeyes hopefully prevail.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time I ever played that on harmonica. <laughs> oh yes, may may the. Uh, the evil team lose. <laughs> do, do your do your uh, listeners know that you're from Ohio?
0: I think so. I mentioned, or we've just discussed a lot of hands that took place in Cleveland. Oh, okay. And so I think most people who have been listening to the show for any amount of time know that I'm from Ohio.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Just returned to New York from the great state of Ohio. Had a nice time. Got back to the Jack Casino. Played in a really lousy 2-5 game.
1: So it's good <laughs> to be home. <laughs> a really lousy five to five game in where where at?
0: At the Jack Casino in Cleveland.
1: Oh, in Cleveland. Oh, okay. The reason I say
0: it was lousy is because I had one of my best friends, who's a professional, who was back in town, also on my left, and a longtime student to the left of him, <laughs> and then another friend of mine who's very good across the table, and so it was more of like you know hanging with old friends versus playing in a game where right. I was like going to make a, a ton of money. Right. Yeah. Social call. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to leave the listeners with before we take off and um, check out the game?
1: Well, yeah, there's a couple promo items, which is waiting for straighters is it's a book in that it's longer than an article, but it's about the length of 10 poker articles. So it's not really a full length book. You can read the whole thing for free at my website, TommyAngelo.com. If you like the convenience of ebooks, you can buy the ebook at Amazon or at my site for three bucks. And I also made an audiobook version. It's at all the usual audiobook places. And uh so far people are really liking the, the audiobook. I did put some fun stuff in there. I'm a sound engineer, so I do all that myself. And you might want to check that out if you like audiobooks. And then um I'm doing coaching now by the half hour, hundred dollars for a half hour. You can read, you know, we can do just one off sessions or multiple sessions and you can read all about that at my site too.
0: Awesome. I read the book in one sitting. I found it very helpful and also very relaxing oh, for good. whatever reason. Good. I don't know if it was the style of writing or the content. Uh-huh. You know, I just, you know, felt the stress of playing non-straters just wafting away from me. You know? <laughs> nice.
1: Well, it is. It's a big form of stress relief. It really really is.
0: Yeah, but I highly... We definitely did not give away... You might think you have the gist of the book already, but one, you don't, and two, you can read it in one sitting, so get it and buy it. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. That's great advice. (laughs) Tommy, thank you again. Uh, Thank you, Jack. And yeah, we'll include the links and everything in the show notes so people can easily get that, and
1: I'll mention it in the announcements. Great. Thanks. Always a pleasure talking to you.
0: Likewise. Uh let me know when more exciting Tommy Angelo works come into the ether. And I'll catch you in San Francisco at some point soon.
1: Okay. Cool.
0: Peace.